This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Equity life. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in roughly 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm good, Bryce. I always enjoy these Ask Us Anything episodes, so... You know, we get a real sense of the questions out there. So looking forward to getting stuck into this one again. Yeah, nice. It is that time of month. Last episode of every month, we dedicate to answering as many of the questions as we can that have come in from the Equity Mates community. If you're new to the show, welcome. Welcome aboard uh, the journey of investing. If you do have any questions and you'd like us to try and answer them on the show, head to our website. There's a forum there, Ask Us Anything forum where you can uh, hit us up with any question you'd like. Alternatively, we're across all the social media channels and also email as well, contact at equitymates.com. So hit us up and uh, we'll try and answer your questions. Pretty big episode this one, Ren. We've had some really interesting questions come in. We've picked out a few that we think will be worthwhile to everyone. So um, let's get stuck in. I think we're going to have to say this every episode now, every Ask Us Anything episode. We can't get to all the questions, so we, we're a little bit discerning. If we can't answer them, though, if you ask them on the discussion group, there's generally people who are more than happy to answer the questions for you. So don't feel like you need to just ask us. There's a whole community of people who listen to the show, interested in investing and are looking for people to share the journey with. And so if we don't get to the question on the show, ask it in the discussion group and you look, you probably will get a better answer <laughs> than we can give. So maybe just maybe just even yeah, start a, with the discussion group. Yeah, but I, I definitely think that's, that's a really useful resource. I'm definitely learning a lot from it and I'm just stoked that it's sort of become what it is. Yeah, same. Equity Mates discussion group on Facebook, ask to join and, and we'll add you in. Uh, like you, Ren, I'm, I'm really enjoying it, just uh, lurking in the background, reading what everyone's saying, uh, learning a lot as well. So, Well, we know, we know you don't just lurk in the background. We know you have that fake account. Oh, that you- this is not true. <laughs> <laughs> Do not send people on a, on a hunt for my fake account because it really sends... No, I do not have a fake account for anyone listening to this. A journalist, you know Mitt Romney, the yeah, yeah. guy that ran against Obama in 2012, that a journalist just uncovered his fake Twitter account this week. 
uh, some like, French name. I can't remember what it was, but I think we're going to need to get a journalist onto you to figure out <laughs> your, your fake account. <laughs> Mate, I'll tell you what, you'll be searching for eternity because I don't have one, but I'd love to see you try and get a journalist involved and start the process just for the laughs of it anyway. So, <laughs> Okay, all right. I'll think about it. <laughs> well, let's kick into it, Ren. Do you want me to ask you the first question? Yeah, sure. Far away. So, first question is on a ethical investing app called Goodman's, and I'm glad I'm asking you this question because I'm actually not familiar with it. So, the questioner, Maxine, wants to know your thoughts on Goodman's, on their fees, and if there are more reasonably priced or better platforms out there. So, Goodman's is an investing app and I think we came across it, I came across it, I don't know, maybe half a year ago or so as we were discussing the idea of trying to come up with ways to help people filter through the stock market and all the companies that are out there, but filter in a way that's not sort of based on metrics and whatnot, but more based on qualitative side of things. So, you know, social and ethical and and that side of things. And that's what Goodman's do. They let you invest in companies that match your environmental, social and ethical values and they do it brokerage free. There are still some fees involved, which we'll go through in a minute, but essentially they offer you 2000 international shares and ETFs that sort of fit your values. So you can go in and say that you want solar power, semiconductors, whatever it may be, and they'll find companies that sort of match that Good news is there's no minimum spend. You can invest as little as you like. They don't sort of charge brokerage fees, but second part of the question was around the fees that they they do charge. So I went in and had a look and their fee structure is pretty interesting. They charge $3. There's four sort of tiers. The fourth one I don't really understand, so I might need to get in touch with them, but $3 per buy trade, $2.99 per month, and that gives you two trades. Or you can pay $13.99 per month for unlimited trades. Or then there's a $12.50 yearly fee. So to me, that seems to be the one you would go for. I don't understand why you'd pay $14 a month if you could pay $12.50 a year. But anyway. What, is it, is it $12.50 a year and unlimited trades? That's, what, is that what, it that's says? what their website says, yeah. Jeez, so, you might have just found the floor in there. Uh, <laughs> massive their loophole. Funding model. <laughs> but anyway, if you quickly look at the percentages as a brokerage, so say you're doing a $500 trade, $3 per buy trade, that's 0.6 of a percent, $2.99 per month. So across two trades, you're paying 0.299% on each of those trades. To make the $13.99 per month unlimited trades worthwhile, you'd probably want to be making more than three trades per month to keep it under that. rule of thumb and then obviously if you're paying $12.50 a year if that even is real it's pretty cheap depending on how many trades you're making so from a pricing perspective it seems to make reasonable sense so yeah I think look it looks good don't really have anything against it I'm not a user do you have any opinion Ren? Nah as I said I haven't really looked into it but it does interest me the the whole ethical investing space interests me so maybe i'll have a look into it yeah it's a good interesting development and certainly heading in the direction the right direction and you know tapping into that that sort of market nice thanks maxine so there's a second part to maxine's question and it's around crowdfunding so platforms like equitize and we spoke to one of the co-founders of equitize 
what, a mu- about a month ago now. And essentially, crowdfunding venture capital platforms allow you to invest in private companies. And so Max N wants to know, how do you essentially make money from these trades, especially if they don't go public on the ASX? Sure. Great question. Obviously, one of the main things to consider with these crowdfunding or private private equity putting in putting money into unlisted assets is the liquidity side of things. So yes, it's a lot harder to get a return on your your capital as quickly as it is, say, for if you're in in the share market. Uh, generally speaking, yeah, one of the ways you you would get a return is if it does list on the ASX, becomes public, and then you would then get a proportion of the the stocks once it does go public, and then you can decide to sell them or, or keep them. You would get the same proportion of stocks as your initial investment would be worth. So, you know, if you put in some money and you ended up getting one percent of the company then that would would be the amount of stocks that you get when it goes public. Secondly, well, hold on, unless they unless they when they raise capital they sell more stock. Yes, yeah. yeah. The other way Ren is if it doesn't go public, it might be bought by another company, privately bought, at which point you would receive either stocks in the new in the company that does buy private stocks again or probably get a cash payout as well for the value of or the proportion of the company that you owned from your initial investment. And then I think the other way, Ren, correct me if I'm wrong, but sometimes in private equity as well, uh, they do have distributions of profit as the company goes along its journey before p- perhaps an exit and you would get a share of, of the profit just like you would a dividend. But I think you'd have to probably check each time you make the investment if that's a, an option or not. Is there anything I'm missing? No, that, that's the main one. Really, to summarize it, I think there's two ma- main ways to make money while the company is growing. Uh, and that is, number one, as you said, the profits that are paid out. So if you own 1% of the company, you get 1% of the profits that are paid out. So that's number one. And then number two, as the company grows, there may be times when investors, other investors in the company or company founders or whoever look to buy stock from other investors. So there may be opportunities to sell stock to other investors privately. So it's not through the public markets, but you know it's an asset that you own and you can sell it. And so those opportunities arise every now and then. So they're, they're the two options while the company's growing. And then as you touched on, the two main ways that you make money as an exit, as it's called, is one, the company's bought by a bigger company and you get paid out. Or number two, the company goes public and then you have the ability to sell shares on the stock exchange. So hopefully that answers Maxine's question. Good question. I think also the main takeaway from that as well is if you are looking to do any sort of unlisted investing in assets, then just keep in mind the liquidity. It's not often that easy to get the, your money back as as quickly as you would like. So let's move on, Ren. We've got a question in from Marcus. He's learning a lot over the last year or so and was wondering if he could get a rundown on a few New Zealand index funds or listed investment companies. He's noticed that they're outperforming the ASX over there in, uh, in New Zealand and would like to know if there's anything that we're aware of that he could probably get a bit of exposure to the market. Yeah, now I, I had a bit of a look. So I actually couldn't find an ETF that is traded in Australia 
that is purely exposed to the New Zealand market that you know tracks the New Zealand top 50 or the or, you know and the all market New Zealand index that surprised me and I reckon there must be ETFs out there that do it that trade on the ASX I couldn't find them through some googling so I would say if anyone knows about them let us know and then maybe also let the ETF provider know to improve their SEO but there are some so there's one that trades on the NASDAQ in the US, and that is the iShares MSCI New Zealand ETF. I did look at this. It had about 30 holdings in it. So it will be the 30 biggest companies in the New Zealand market. So that's one. There's a New Zealand ETF provider, SmartShares, and they run a bunch of different ETFs listed in New Zealand. So really that that's where all your different options are, you know, New Zealand top 50, New Zealand all stocks, New Zealand property, New Zealand bonds, everything New Zealand. So that I think they have like 20 odd ETFs. So if you want to have a look at all the different options to get exposure to the New Zealand market, Smart Shares, the New Zealand ETF provider might be the way to go. In Australia, now, I said there was no ETFs listed. There is an index fund, so it's a, it gives you exposure to the, an index of New Zealand shares, but it's not publicly traded. It's private, and that's run by AMP, so you can look at that as well. So there's a few options, but yeah, it's really take your pick. Nice. Got a question for you, Bryce. What are, the, what are the three biggest companies in New Zealand? Air New Zealand, the airline? No. Oh, Okay, countdown. No, that's, that's owned by Woolies. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll give you a hint. The uh, first one I didn't know was a New Zealand company. Uh, well, that no, doesn't <laughs> help me at all. <laughs> no idea. No idea, bro. So these were the biggest three holdings in the uh, iShares New Zealand ETF. So I'm just assuming they're the th- biggest three by market cap. Number three was Auckland Airport. Number two was A2 Milk. Oh, yeah. Damn it. And number one was Fisher and Paykel. Oh, there you go. Would not didn't have been... Pe- yeah, didn't know they were from New Zealand. Yeah, and good on them for staying on the New Zealand Stock Exchange. <laughs> but then I, had, then I had a look. They're actually... They've got a Chinese parent company now. Yeah, of course they do. Um, but, they're, but they're still listed in New Zealand. So the airport's bigger than the actual airline. I guess so. Yeah. Wow. It would would Sydney Airport be bigger than Qantas? No, surely not. Anyway, I'm going to say just to take the bet that it is, and I'm going to Google it quickly. All right. Okay. So you you are saying that Qantas is larger than Sydney Airport? Yes. So Qantas's market cap comes in at nine point eight five billion. Pretty strong. You wouldn't be disappointed. I thought it would be above 10, to be honest, but yeah. Sydney Airport, market cap of 19.4 billion. <laughs> wow, twice the size. Yeah, and you know what? Auckland Airport has a bigger market cap than Qantas. You're kidding. Coming in at 10.26 billion. Wow, well, there you go. Very interesting, and luckily we've just done an episode on market capitalization, so now everyone will know what we're talking about. So. Yes, yes. So, Ren, while you're on a roll, uh, I've got another question for you that's come in hot from Sam. 
Now, Sam is a new investor. He's hit the markets a couple of months ago. Luckily for Sam, he's got around 50 to 100K that he wants to invest in ETFs. And it's a good question. He's wondering how fast he should put that money into, say, a spread of three to four ETFs. Would, would you do it all at once? Would you be doing 10K a month? Obviously, we're not giving any sort of advice here, but how would you think about this sort of situation? So, it's a good question. Number one, well done saving 50 to 100 grand. I know. <laughs> that, that in itself is a great achievement. So, look, if you have three to four ETFs that you're interested in, that's great and that's really the hard part done. You have two choices in terms of putting this money in. One is you just put it all in at the start and then the second choice is if you dollar cost average it. Now, dollar cost averaging is essentially where you decide you're going to have put a set amount in every month regardless of the price. And what that means is when the price is down, you buy more shares for that set amount of money. And if the price is up, you buy less shares for that set amount of money. But over a long period of time, it takes out the the risk of buying, you know, at at the top of the market or anything like that. So it just it just spreads out your when you're buying. Now, a lot of people prefer dollar cost averaging just because I guess psychologically it makes it a little bit easier. I think when it's back tested, what people find is that just doing a lump sum at the start gets slightly better returns. And I think I think the reason for that is just you know, what we always say about time in the market. It's just getting in there and holding it for a long period of time generally leads to better results. But I think dollar cost averaging is a really useful tool uh, if you're just getting started and you've got all this money saved and you don't want to put it all in one hit and see two weeks later, you know, it fall 10%. Psychologically, that can be really tough and it might turn you off investing altogether. So figure out what your temperament is. Figure out, you know, if you would be willing to see your holdings uh, fall in those first couple of weeks or whatever. Dollar cost averaging is a great way to start. And then the the main thing is just, eventually to get it all in nice couldn't agree more all right so next question comes from spence and he went back and listened to the episodes on buffettology which is a cracking book that we both read and we did a couple of episodes on it i think last year and so spence was wondering if the concepts are still relevant today's to today's market given it was written in 1997 and then he's also interested in tools to find growth stocks all right well let's address the buffettology part of the question first so buffett buffettology as you said ran a book that we've both read we actually did a couple of episodes on it it's all about the techniques and strategies and investment methods that uh, warren buffett Users and they, it goes into quite a, a bit of detail on his sort of step-by-step approach. So I think, you know, is it relevant because it was written in 1997? Well, the concepts that Buffett's speaking about, you know, he didn't invent, they, you know, they, they preceded his investment life as well. So the, the short answer is yes, they are still relevant. The, the thing to consider, I guess, is, and maybe why the question would be asked is, you know, he's a very value-based investor and 
in in you know the last few years there's been a lot of commentary around the performance of value investing we know that there's the stocks you know there's high growth stocks the, the small caps have been performing a lot better than perhaps if you're pursuing a value-based investment strategy but fundamentally the the, the concepts that Buffett talks about definitely still holds strong. And I'll just read an excerpt from the book just to demonstrate that, you know, what he was talking about 30, 40 years ago, still what we talk about and, you know, the best investors in the world still talk about today as it's as it remains, you know, still incredibly relevant in my opinion. So it goes on to say, Warren is interested only in long-term ownership of businesses that possess some sort of consumer monopoly and allow for continuous per share earnings growth through either expansion of operations or stock buybacks. Because continuous per share earnings growth eventually equates to higher per share prices for the company stock, Warren discovered that it makes more sense to hold an investment for as long as possible, even when the market places a high value on the stocks. So, you know, compounding is is one of Warren's sort of greatest uh, points that he talks about. And I think, you know, Ren, we both speak of finding companies, you know, that have that monopoly, that have the ability to reinvest money into the company and grow from the, those investments. So I, I certainly believe that the, the concepts are still very much relevant. It's, I, I guess, just about how do you, do, do you apply it at certain times when the market is perhaps not so much in favour of those concepts. Do you have anything to add? No, I think the concepts remain relevant because if you strip them down to what they are, they're just about finding good businesses at good prices. Absolutely. So to the second part of the question, Ren, resources to find growth stocks. From a book perspective, I think the best one that I've read is called Trade Like a Stock Market Wizard. It's by Mark Miniverni. And it uses charts as a way of identifying stocks that are perhaps in their growth phase from a, from a price point of view and how you can, I guess, take advantage of that and, and ride these stocks as, as they go up in price. Pretty easy book to, to follow and one that I know a few investors, uh, we know Ren, have, have taken into consideration as part of their strategy. But otherwise, I don't really necessarily have any other specific resources. One thing that you can do to identify growth stocks is just use filters when you're doing a, a stock screen and just filter by, you know, three-month high, one-month high, six-month high, um, one-year high, and just have a look at stocks that are perhaps continuously in the, the top five or 10 or 20 of each of those, and that'll give you a good indication from a price point of view which stocks are really on, on the move. Do you have any – I guess you don't really look for growth stocks, Ren. Uh, no, I've got some things. So um, to, you started with books, so I'll start with books as well. There's a whole series of books uh, called Stock Market Wizards, not related to the book that you recommended. These books are by Jack Schwager. Schwager. They're good ones. They sort of profile big investors. They might be a good one to start with. Uh, and there's a book that um, someone reminded me about at our Melbourne Live show that might be good. The book's called 100 Baggers, and it talks about stocks that return 100 to 1 and how to find them. So that might be a good one if you're thinking growth. And then in a similar vein to you, I think there are certain metrics that you can look at that are indicative of companies that 
have strong growth prospects. So there are more backwards-looking ones, so things like revenue or sales growth, things like earnings growth, look at that over one, three, five years. And then there are ones that are maybe more present or future-looking, and that's particularly things like uh, return on invested capital and return on equity. Because what, what you want to find is that for as companies grow the, their profits, their earnings, they are able to then deploy that money at high rates of return. You know, they're able to invest in their business, they're able to expand their operations, they're able to hire more people, buy new factories, expand into new markets and grow really quickly. So I think, I think, think about what those metrics are telling you about the underlying business and there are some that indicate really strong growth prospects. Good question, Spence. We'll move on to a question from Jared, and it is on what are your thoughts in regards to the Australian banking stocks and what their potential downsides may be? In particular, if a market correction is looming, banks a good defensive option? Interesting question from Jared. So, Let's start with the the yield side of things. So he's talking about using them as a defensive position, I guess, from an income point of view. So the banks do pay great dividends. ANZ currently pay a dividend that's 5.74% yield. Commonwealth is about the same, 5.78. Westpac is 6.5 and NAB 6.3. So some pretty good returns, uh, reasonable returns um, on your money from a dividend perspective. However, I think in, in this market, you know, you look at the exposure that the banks have to our to our home loan sector and you need to start thinking about how they react as well with interest rates. So with interest rates dropping, from the central banks, you know, their, their profit margins are being squeezed. There's a lot of lending regulation that has come in over the sort, sort of last 18 months as well that has uh, stifled their ability to lend, I guess, as aggressively as they used to. There's, you know, the concern that there'd be a number of bad loans on their books. And also we're seeing a lot of increased competition to the big four banks coming in, particularly through the online sector. Um, So, you know, taking away some customers that would otherwise be with them. So, yes, they do pay great dividends. However, I think at the moment, as it stands, there are a number of risks associated with going into the banks. And I just thought I'd call out that in October, early this month, Morgan Stanley actually sent out a, a note to their clients from one of their analysts that predict that Westpac will actually be cutting their dividend by 15% when the company reports their full year results next month. In addition to that, Westpac also expected to raise $2 billion in order to meet their capital requirements. So there's a, there's a requirement for all banks to hold capital reserve in case of emergency, I guess is the easiest way to put it. And ANZ have also predicted to cease their buyback and drop their dividends by 10% as well after they post their results soon as well. So look, from a dividend perspective, it's probably unlikely to continue as, as profits slide. The banks are probably likely to, to withhold the payment of the profits as much to shareholders. So I hope that answers your question, Jared. So we'll move on, Ren. This one coming in from Dario. He's just started his investing journey and he's obviously at the first hurdle of finding a broker. He wants to be able to filter his ideas based on 
fundamental criteria like PE ratios, return on equity, but he'd also like to go back in time, um, you know, pre-GFC or pre.com bubble and test his theories and strategies against, I guess, the stock prices back in the day. Do you know of anything that would allow him to do that? My best advice there would be separate the three things that you're trying to do there. So you're looking for a broker to buy and sell your shares. You're looking for a stock screener to uh, filter the market based on fundamental criteria like PE ratios and return on investment. And then you're also looking for a tool that will allow you to backtest particular strategies or particular trades. And for those who are unfamiliar with the term, a backtest is essentially... it goes back in time and it says you know if you had followed this strategy this is how you would have this is how your that strategy would have performed up to today so you know you could back test a low price to earnings strategy where you buy companies where their price to earnings ratio is below 10 there's millions of strategies you could back test but but essentially you're asking for three separate things there i'm not across a broker that offers both stock screener and uh, backtesting tool. My suggestion would be choose a broker that is the right broker for you that offers you low brokerage fees and access to the markets that you want to access. And then there's plenty of stock screeners that are free on the internet. There are also plenty that you can pay for and have additional features. I won't, we won't spruik any particular ones, but if you just Google stock screener and then the market, you know, stock screener ASX, stock screener US market or, you know, whatever, you'll find heaps. And then finally, backtesting tools. There's a bunch that you could Google. There's a free one called Portfolio Visualizer that I just came across while I was Googling. To be honest, it's not something that I've had too much of a look at. But again, if you Google it, you'll find plenty. But I think that's the way to approach it. Separate the three things that you want to you wanna find and find them separately. Yeah, good shout. Okay, uh, next question is on bonds. So we mentioned bond ETFs and the questioner would actually love a whole episode on these. I guess they might have to settle for part of an episode. <laughs> a very small part. This one's in from Maddie. Do you want to know? About bond ETFs. Oh, okay. that's it. That's the, that's the that's the question. Oh, okay. Well, yes. So maybe we'll have to dedicate a bit more time at some other point in time to to do this in some detail. But we all know that I guess accessing bonds is quite difficult for the retail investor. Usually, they're sold at in the wholesale market. You know. $500,000 or above. However, there are some bond ETFs available in the market for retail investors to get their hands on if they please. I think that the three main ones to consider in the Australian market, there's an iShares core composite bond ETF. Its ticker is IAF. There's a S&P ASX Australian bond fund. Its ASX ticker is BOND. And then there's the Vanguard Australian Fixed Interest Index ETF, and its ticker is VAF. Now, I guess probably doesn't mean much just listening to the names. Uh, the Vanguard one is by far the biggest of all three of them. It's also the cheapest of all three in terms of its underlying management costs, and it has the greatest amount of liquidity 
primarily just because it's the biggest on the market. The bond is the smallest on the market and uh, actually doesn't have a great amount of liquidity. So something to consider if you're looking at buying one of the three ETFs. And without going into too much detail, I think, Ren, I just probably worth mentioning that in terms of performance, they've all performed very similar to each other over the last three to five years. So I wouldn't worry too much about choosing the perfect ETF when it comes to these sorts of things. So if you're interested in bonds, check it out. I'm going to disagree with you a little bit there. Okay. Just the, the one thing I would pay a little bit of attention to is what bonds are in these bond ETFs because a government bond ETF and a company bond ETF might perform similarly when you know a rising tide is lifting all boats, but governments have better credit scores than companies. And if something was to go wrong, that might start to shine through. So you can go on their websites and you can read what bonds are held by these funds. Uh, that would be the one thing I'd suggest checking. That's no, a good call. So moving on. Thanks for the question, Maddie. Good question. This one's come in, unfortunately, I think this one's from Facebook, Ren. So would we ever recommend selling shares at below market price to guarantee they sell? For example, breaking news overnight, and before the market opens, you go in and, and place an, an order. So let's say the market suggests that you know the, the stock's currently trading at 20 bucks. They reckon due to the news that's come through overnight, it's going to, to drop significantly at open. Is it worthwhile going in and putting in an order at, say, $19.50 to try and sell it before it drops even further after open? What are your thoughts on this sort of strategy? So... I think number one is you shouldn't sell on bad news unless it materially changes your thesis about a company. But the literally the worst time to sell is when people are trying to get out because there's some short-term hiccup or there's some news report which isn't favourable. Um, so that, that would be my opening caveat to the whole thing. Sometimes just have to hold your nose and ride it out. And, you know, the share price might rebound quicker than you expect. If some news comes out and it does radically change your thesis, you can price what you're willing to sell at below what what it's currently trading at in the hopes that your shares do sell. But you've got to keep in mind that if the news is particularly bad, the share price might, might open well below what you put as your share price uh, that you're willing to sell at. So, you know, in your example, you've said if you put it in at 19.50 and the share price is $20 overnight, it could gap down and open at 10 bucks. And it's not like anything between the share price when it closed the night before and when it opens that morning gets cleaned up as the or you know gets actioned as as the share price drops. The share price is literally just the, the price of the last sale. So, you know, if if buyers are only willing to buy it at $10 and you've put something in at $19.50, it doesn't matter that it was lower than the night before. It just, it won't sell. Yeah. There's no guarantees. But I think the main thing is, unless the news is, you know, the company's committed fraud or whatever it is, selling on day-to-day bad news is bad news. Yes. Nice. Hopefully that hopefully that answers the question. So, 
I think we are ripping through it. We're over 40 minutes. So this will be the last question. And it comes from Vanessa. She has a question and essentially it is, can someone be over diversified? And she asked that because she has money in Raise, Spaceship, Stake, Rate Setter, Equitize and IG. Ironically, all platforms we've spoken about on Uh the podcast. So, (laughs) Vanessa, good to see you're a fan. And basically she's asking, you know, because it's in so many different places, is that an issue? Is she overly diversified? So I think what she's talking about diversification from a platform point of view. I guess from my point of view, you can't really be too over-diversified. I think the thing you need to consider if you're thinking about platforms, is just the amount of fees that you could be paying across all of them. Um, you know, each each one might have a different fee structure um, and if you were to consolidate them and invest in, in you know, fewer, fewer platforms, then you might be reducing the number, the amount of fees that you'd be paying. But as we've sort of always said, Ren, I think each... Each platform offers different opportunities and different ways of investing. So, you know, having something in raise and having something in stake, you know, you're getting access to different markets, different asset classes. So, you know, you're you're really diversifying your exposure um, from an investing point of view, which is a good thing. You know, rate setter, that's, that's cash. So, again, diversified sort of asset class, equitize. So I think from Vanessa's specific situation, all the platforms are actually giving her different investing outcomes across a number of different asset classes. So I don't see really any any problem in that. It's just, I guess, at tax time, you need to make sure that you've got all your ducks in a row and, and can report on it properly. That's probably one thing to consider as well. But, you know, a lot of pots doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing. What are your thoughts? So I think your fee call out is a good one that potentially some of the platforms, the fee structure gets better if you have more assets in them. And so just be careful about that. But I think that the most important thing is if you're in three different platforms, so from the list that we spoke about before, if we're talking about Raise, Spaceship and IG, but all three of them are just holding different versions of big Australian companies that you're not actually diversified. You're just you're holding the same assets in three different places. And so it doesn't spread the risk out because they're all the same assets. So you're right that rate setter and equitize are different and stake is obviously focused on the US. But but my my big thing would be and to speak from personal experience, this is actually what I do. So I I have a few different platforms that I use just for different things. But when I look at my portfolio and when I try and track my portfolio, I put them, put them all into like one spreadsheet and um, I don't make any distinction based on what platform they're held on. Like if they're on Stake or if they're on IG or Comsec, I, I, I just... That, that's irrelevant because what actually matters is what you own. And so maybe a good way to think about it is forget the platforms that you're holding it on and look at what you're actually holding it, what you're holding, and then compare, you know, are you holding a lot of just Australian shares on different platforms or are there is there actually a diverse range of assets 
that you own. Yeah, a good shout there, Ren. I completely agree, and to your point, when I track my portfolio as well, I definitely don't lump it in any sort of platform-based tracking. It's just, as you said, what do I own, not where do I own it. Nice. Well, there was a a question from Marco Piancentini, but uh, I'll answer that on Facebook. I just wanted to try and pronounce his name because he said no hard feelings if I can't pronounce his name. So hopefully (laughs) that was pronounced correctly. Marco, I'll um, hit you up on Facebook and answer your question as we've run out of time, Ren. Keep the questions coming in. As Ren said at the start of the show, we can't get to all of them, but do use the Facebook discussion group because there's a whole bunch of intelligent people in there who are willing to share their experiences and stories as well so hit that up also instagram twitter we're everywhere if you want to get in touch with us please do but as always ren great to close out the month of october with and ask us anything looking forward to what november brings yeah can't wait equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned this is general advice only Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.